As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles. And as you see behind us, this new ministry year, we are kicking off this theme of living hope. And we're drawing it out of the book of First Peter. So that's where you're going to want to turn to this morning, First Peter. The theme of the year and the theme really of this morning is this idea of hope and a living hope. And we desperately need a hope in this world, don't we? We desperately need something to hold on to in this world. I mean, um, here, here's what I pulled up on my phone just earlier this week. I was thinking about this. Just, just, just here's my news feed. I just scroll over my phone, and here's the news feed. Halifax issues voluntary evacuation for high-risk areas as Hurricane Dorian approaches. Uh, vaping causes havoc in the lungs. Study with mice finds. It's nice to know. Police warn that accused neo-Nazi Canadian soldier could have fled to U.S. Humboldt, if you remember the tragedy in Humboldt with the Humboldt Broncos hockey team, that bus crash, rebranding to move past weeping city image. This is just a normal day's news feed. And I think we're all familiar with that. We, we pick up our phone, we turn on the television, we listen to the news or watch the news, and what we see is a world that's filled with tragedy, with hardship, with suffering and struggling and difficulty, with pain, brokenness. But we don't have to look to a news cycle to understand this truth. All we have to do is look around us or even at our own lives. I mean, I was thinking back this week at, at, at our church and what's going on and what's happened in, in the life of our church this past year. Things that some of you have experienced. Some of you um, may have never known what's gone on in the life. There's been, there's been tragedy in our midst this past year. There's been pain in relationships. There's been suffering in relationships. There's been abuse. There's been separations in marriages. And some of you have witnessed this not just in your own life, but in lives around you. You've experienced this. Divorce, pain, hurt, tragedy. We, we see the effects of sin, not just in the world around us. We see the effects of sin in our own lives, in the life of the church. The world we live in is hard, the lives we live are often hard, but what Peter wants to get at this morning and throughout the book of 1 Peter is that following Jesus in the midst of this dark world is hard. Forget about all, all of the normal circumstances and difficulty brought, out, brought about by just sin in the world. When you choose to follow Jesus Christ, Peter wants to make it abundantly clear. The choice to commit yourself to following Jesus, the choice to declare Jesus is my Lord and my master, the choice to live for Jesus means that you are inviting hardship and difficulty and suffering and struggle into your life. Not a popular message. But it is a biblical message. And you know what? Throughout the ages, those who have truly surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord, you can read testimony after testimony of this. They have been hated. They have been rejected. They have been persecuted. And they have even been martyred, killed for the faith. And this, we find out in the scriptures, is actually defined in some sense as normal Christianity. Who's ready to sign up? Granted, it's not always hard. Granted, we're not always suffering. Granted, we're not always facing opposition. But I think in many ways, we become used to not experiencing opposition and we believe somehow that that is what is to be normal when the scriptures teach just the opposite. You see, the world we live in, the lies we live, and the new life we've been given in Christ come with all kinds of challenges. They just do. 
And the question we need to ask is this, how do we survive? How do we survive all of this hardship? How do we survive this difficult life? How do we survive the opposition we face as followers of Jesus Christ? How do we not just survive, but how do we thrive and find joy and peace and satisfaction in this life? What exactly do we cling to? What do we hold on to when life is hard? How do we meet the challenges that we will inevitably face? Maybe the answer is to go into our backyards and dig a bunker and fill it with non-perishable food items and simply wait till Jesus returns. No, that's not what Jesus calls us to. That's not the hope we cling to. In this book, of 1 Peter, it meets us in the reality of all of these struggles, of all of the intensity of our suffering, and oftentimes the confusion of our souls. And it offers us what nothing else can, what no one else can. It offers us what every person in this world is seeking for. It offers to us a living hope in the midst of darkness and hostility. It offers to us this beautiful gift of hope as an anchor for our souls, a hope that is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And hope is what we need to live faithfully for Jesus in this present world, in this challenging world, in this often hostile world. That's what Peter is inviting us into this morning. That's what Peter will invite us into throughout this book. He is wanting to equip us to live lives of hope in the midst of a hostile world. He begins with a customary greeting, but in the greeting itself, it is filled with so much hope And it's intended to set this stage for hope. And so I want you to see here that he's calling us to be holding on to hope. Here's what it says, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to read verses 1 and 2 this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter offers to us this morning hope. A hope that will guide our lives, that will anchor our lives a hope that will help us in this hostile world. And so I want to draw from these two verses simply three reasons we can have hope this morning. Wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, whatever you may face, especially as you choose to follow Jesus, I want you to see three reasons you can have hope no matter what. First, just notice this. I can have hope because God is speaking. I can have hope because God is speaking. Our God is a God who is not silent. Our God is a God who communicates to his people and this is intended, listen, to instill hope in us. Where there's so much confusion, where there's so many questions, we are assured by the word of God that our God is a speaking God. We're introduced right out the gates to the author of this book. He identifies himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, most of you are at least familiar with the name Peter. You know a little bit about who he is. You know he was once a a fisherman. 
Jesus had come up alongside him one day, he and his brother, and he had called him and he said, hey, leave, leave these nets beside you, come and follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Peter doesn't say much about himself. You'll, you'll notice that here. In fact, he kind of wants to fade a bit into the background, but we know enough about Peter to gain a good understanding of who this man is writing this letter. He was called by Jesus. He was chosen to be one of the 12 disciples. He was given this title as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was a representative of Jesus Christ. That's how he identifies himself here. We know this about Peter. He was in the inner circle of Jesus' kind of group of 12. He was near and dear to the heart of Jesus. Peter was boisterous. He was the first one to speak up. He had a very dominant personality. He was a leader amongst leaders. We know in Matthew chapter 16 that he was the first one of the disciples to confess that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. He did that by the power of the spirit and the grace of God that had revealed that to him. And do you remember what Jesus said to him in Matthew chapter 16? Jesus looks at Peter and he says, and you are Peter, you are rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He went on to tell the other disciples alongside Peter that they were going to be given the keys to the kingdom. In other words, God was going to use this group of 12 to open and close the door of salvation to many, Jews and Gentiles alike. They would become, they would have, excuse me, this delegated authority from Jesus. They would have a unique role in redemptive history. To be an apostle was no small thing. In fact, an apostle was something you had to be chosen for, capital A, apostle, to hold the office of the apostle. And you see, it's something that does not exist anymore. The book of Acts tells us that the requirement to be an apostle was that you had to be an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus Christ, that you had to be appointed by Jesus Christ himself. And Peter was just that. He, he was an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. He saw his life, he saw his ministry, he saw his death, and he witnessed his resurrection. As a result, his role would, to be, would be a permanent eyewitness, somebody who would give testimony to the truth. He had been appointed by Jesus for this very purpose. You see, God had called Peter, this man, to bear witness in a very specific way. He would now give inspired, authoritative teaching to the church. Before Jesus was crucified, he pulled his disciples aside and he commissioned his apostles to actually teach in his name. In other words, he, he said, you will teach with my authority. You will have an authority like no one else has ever had. And he actually told them that his spirit would bring to mind the things that he had taught them. They would be vessels through which God would communicate divine truth to the world. In fact, look at what the Gospel of John says. Again, from the, the lips of Jesus Christ in John 14, 26, it says this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this context is incredibly important. Jesus is speaking to his own disciples and he is telling them about their future ministry. 
He's saying, you're not just going to be a human witness. Uh, It's just not going to be your opinion and your perspective. I will supernaturally bring to your mind, to the presence of my spirit, all of the truth that is necessary for you to communicate to the people of God. In John 15, 26 and 27, he reiterates this, again to his disciples, but then when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Again, Jesus is giving this reassurance of the unique divine authority that they would have. This is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.20 can say definitively that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. All of this, listen, is a reminder that Peter, yes, is the human that is writing these words, but he is a divine instrument in the hands of God, communicating to us divine truth. And when you read through this letter, what you see is this, that Peter is not preaching about himself. He cares very little about himself. He doesn't even refer much to what he's experienced. He's not preaching human wisdom. He's not preaching self-help. He's not preaching feel-good pep talks. He's not even just simply giving practical advice. He is preaching about Jesus Christ. He is pulling us back to his hope and to the only hope of the world, Jesus Christ as Lord and Master, the one to whom you should submit your life, the one to whom you should follow with every fiber of your being. He is pulling us into that reality. What we have in front of us, in other words, is not just the words of Peter. It is the word of God himself. I love what uh, St. Augustine said. He said, the Bible is a volume of letters from the heavenly country. John Burgeon, on the screen behind me, let me put a quote up for you. John Burgeon said it like this. The Bible is none other than the voice of him that sitteth upon the throne. Every book of it, every chapter of it, every syllable of it, every letter of it is the direct utterance of the Most High powerful, powerful statements about what we have in front of us this morning, about what we bring home with us every day, of what we have access to every moment of our lives, and we believe what the word of God says about itself. We believe, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that every word of God, the word of God, the scriptures, breathed out by the mouth of God, and that it is profitable for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training the man of God that he might be equipped for every good work. We believe what the word of God says about itself, that the word of God, according to Hebrews 4.12, is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the ability to pierce into the hearts of human beings like nothing else. It has the ability to bring deep conviction over sin. It has the ability to bring comfort and encouragement where desperately needed. The word of God speaks to us like nothing else. And in this church, we believe firmly that when the word of God is speaking, the voice of God is being heard. Amen? Amen. I want you to consider for a moment that Peter is writing the inspired word of God. 
In other words, God is not just speaking here through Peter to a group of churches 2,000 years ago. God is speaking right now to us. Here's the question. We believe this with all of our hearts in this church. Here's the question for you, though. We believe God is speaking. Here's the question. Are you listening? Are you listening? That's the real question for us. I mean, can you even hear him? That's, that's the real big question. Can you hear him right now? Can you hear him in the midst of all the chaos that our lives often bring? Can you hear him in the midst of the confusion and the noise of our lives? I mean, so many times our lives are filled with so much chaos, so many competing voices, so much confusion. I mean, everything's so loud. It can be so hard to hear God speak. We have the world trying to tell us, try this, do this. We have the devil trying to tell us, come on, worship this. Our flesh pulls us. It's really hard to hear amidst all the noise in our lives sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to hear sometimes because our lives are just overrun by chaos, competing voices. Again, let me just say it again. Listen, listen. Our lives are dominated by so many competing voices. They're competing with the voice of God. The world is saying to us, listen, try this, get this, have more of this. This will satisfy you. Satan comes along and he whispers in our ear and he says, listen, you need to love this, worship this, pursue this sin. Sin is better than God is. And our flesh, listen, our flesh, because of sin, it is already being pulled towards passions and desires that are against the spirit of God within us. There's so many voices, it's so loud, it's so hard sometimes just to hear the voice of God clearly in our lives. So let me ask you this morning, what are the competing voices in your life right now? What are they? What are the competing voices in your life? What voice right now is louder in your life than the voice of God's word? What are you choosing to listen to? What are you choosing to believe more than you listen to and believe the word of God and the voice of God in your life? Maybe you're asking this simple question, how do I, how do I cut out those, like that, that noise that just played over here, that does sound a lot like my life. Like spiritually speaking, that sounds a lot like my life. And yeah, I, I'm struggling really to hear God. And you're saying, well, what do I do? How do I cut those voices out of my life? Listen, my prayer and my hope is that as we look at the book of Peter, more than ever this year, we are becoming a people who are being accustomed to hearing the voice of God, who are longing to hear the voice of God. Listen, through the word of God. This is what I'm praying for this year in my own life. This is what I pray for in your life. And maybe, maybe even as we kick off a new ministry year, it's a great time to just pause and say, God, I want this to be a year where I hear you speak to me louder and more clearly than I've ever heard you speak before. Maybe your heart is just right now. You're like, yes, Lord. Listen, pray that to God right now. Pray, God, I want to hear you speak to me. I want to see you more clearly. I want to grow in Christ's likeness. And God, I need to be under the flow and blessing of your word for this to be a reality. Like, how can I do this better this year? Let me just give you a few thoughts to help you put this into practice this year. If, if this is your heart, and I trust that it is, here's what you need to do. First, here's just a practical suggestion. Commit to sacrifice this year, okay? Commit to sacrifice this year. See, what do you mean? Listen, nobody grows in Christ's likeness. Nobody hears more of God's voice who is not willing to sacrifice the competing voices. Nobody. It's like an athlete who wants to become the best at what he does. You know, 1 Corinthians 9. 
disciplines himself. He doesn't do what everybody else says. He's willing to cut things out of his life so he can be the best that he could possibly be. And I would just say to you, listen, you will not grow in your exposure to the word of God unless you're willing to sacrifice some things that are competing for your time with God in his word. And you gotta identify what those things are. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's sleep. Maybe it's some hobby in your life. Maybe it's another relationship that's just consuming. Maybe it's your job. And you're like, if I, like and you, I, I, Ian, I'm too busy. I can't. Listen, there is no can't excuse that is acceptable to the Lord. Do you realize that? I have never, just so you know, I've never heard anybody convince me. Today, you can try. You can come up and try. Convince me that they legitimately can't spend time with the Lord. I've never heard. Now, listen, there's a lot of people who won't. They won't choose it. And I'm asking you to sacrifice something this year so that you can spend more time with the Lord to hear him speak to you through his word. Here's what that's going to require next. Listen, solitude. This is another big thing. Too many of us think we can hear the voice of God just simply going about the daily busyness of our life. You know, uh, I'll listen to to the Bible on my commute, which, by the way, awesome. That's great. All for that. But can I just say that's a great supplement? It's not a great substitute. There is no substitute for solitude with God. Why? You say, why do you say that? Because, listen, everything, when you try to do God plus something else, you will inevitably end up being distracted, and God's voice will be less clear to you than if you just had some solitude time with the Lord. You say, Ian, is this biblical? I don't know. Jesus did it. You tell me. He's a good model, right? And, and in solitude, here's what you're, you're, you're fighting for. Listen, silence. Some of you are like, I could use just a moment of silence, right? And all the moms in here said, amen. Just a silence. Listen, no distractions, no other voices, no music, just quietness before the Lord. Just listen. Just you, God's spirit, a hot cup of coffee, and the word of God speaking over you speaking into you, where you're asking God, speak to me through your word. I'm desperate to hear your voice. I need to hear your voice. And all of this will require, finally, listen, strategic focus in your life. You have to be strategic. This does not happen by accident. It cannot happen if you're haphazard. You have to be strategically focusing on this goal this year. You have to be willing to go home and say, I am carving out time of my schedule. I am going to sit down with the Lord with a journal open, and I am going to read the word of God, and I am going to write out what God is pressing into my soul, and I'm going to meditate upon upon his word, and I am going to be, by the grace of God, transformed by the power of his word as God's voice speaks into my life to make me more like Jesus Christ, amen? This is what we need. This is what we need. And the hope that we have is that our God is speaking. He is not silent. His word is living and active. Some of you are like, man, this has been a struggle in my life. I'm so inconsistent. Can I just, can I just give you hope this year? I don't know where you've been before this. Maybe it's been a tough year. Maybe you haven't been faithful to read your Bible. Maybe it's been, you're just this up and down. Can I just tell you, listen, the hope for you is this. Today is a new day. There's so much grace from God. God God's looking at you. He's not like sitting there so angry that you're not you're being, he's looking at you going like, hey, how about today you start? Today, my grace is sufficient for you. Let's get after it together today. So today, listen, your hope is this. You can hear the voice of God today. And tomorrow, you can hear his voice voice then as well, and every day thereafter. God is still speaking. What hope we have 
from him. Secondly, notice this, I can have hope because God is saving. God is saving. And what Peter does now is he moves away from the authorship of Peter and really the divine authorship of this book as Peter has identified himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And now what he does is he looks at the audience and he wants us to understand who he's writing to and in essence, who we actually are. You'll notice how he identifies them. Some very vivid words he chooses which provide vivid imagery. He says, to those who are uh, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, he chooses two words here that really paint this vivid picture. He chooses the word a dispersion and exiles, and both of them are, are collectively intended to give us a sense of, of who we are and what we're facing in this world and why we need God's saving power in our lives. You see, in the Old Testament, this term dispersion, um, it, it, the word dispersion simply means scattered. A scattering, and typically in the Old Testament, this term speaks of Jews who were scattered from their homeland. You know, God had given them their land. This was their home. This is where they worshiped God. This is where they followed God faithfully. But God had periodically in their history scattered them out of the land so that they were homeless, so to speak. Here, Peter speaks and he says that you are... um, Exiles of the dispersion, and then he goes on to describe their geographical location. This is likely where the churches are. This letter was meant to be circulated amongst the churches, and there's a couple of different ways to view this. Some people have read this and believe, well, you know, he must be writing to predominantly Jews who were dispersed under kind of persecution in the first century. It's possible to read it that way, but it's actually not probable. You see, most um, scholars agree that Peter is actually writing to a predominantly Gentile audience which is really important. In fact, as we go through this letter, we're gonna see a lot of the terms he uses to identify uh, his audience, it actually is pulling and reaching back to and from um, their Jewish roots, or excuse me, their Gentile roots. Now, what's interesting though, is he uses a lot of Jewish terminology to help describe who they now are. But he's writing to a group of, of churches that are in, located in um, kind of modern-day Turkey. That's where you have to kind of picture this taking place. But here, his point is less about their geographical location. And the way he's using these terms as dispersion and exile, they're more metaphorical. He's using it to describe their spiritual condition, not necessarily their physical condition. And what he says of them is actually what is true of all believers for all time. We are a dispersed or scattered people. We are a people who are pushed out of our homeland. We are foreigners and strangers in another place. In fact, he uses this term exiles here as well. Did you catch that? That the word exile can also be translated as stranger. And you see how this is working now as a a metaphor for the Christian existence in this world. We don't have a home. Or at least we're living in a place that's not our home. You see that? The Jews were familiar, and the people of God who were familiar with the Old Testament in the first century, they were familiar with this idea of being exiled. The the Jews were exiled. They were evicted from their land by God himself on two separate occasions. In 722 BC, the Jews were exiled from their land by Assyria, dragged off into Assyria, conquered. 
In 586 BC, the Babylonians drug them off into captivity as well, and they were living in exile. And again, the the imagery, if if you know the Old Testament, the picture is so vivid. Here are these people who are supposed to have a land. Now listen, in the Old Testament context, their sin was the reason they were evicted from the land. In the New Testament context, listen, our salvation is the reason we don't have a land yet. But in the Old Testament, we know that the people of God, they lived as foreigners, strangers, aliens. This is going to become a common theme throughout Peter. We're all like immigrants who have come into a new country. Just imagine what that's like for somebody who's walked into a new country as an immigrant, right? We look different, we sound different, we act different, we believe different, we feel as foreigners out of place. I mean, we look around, we're just, we're so different. It's so obvious to everybody around us and it's so obvious to us. We don't fit in here, not entirely. This is gonna be Peter's message throughout the entire letter of 1 Peter. Followers of Jesus Christ, you are exiles, you're strangers, you're sojourners, you're aliens, you are a different people. Listen, not because of your sin, but because of your salvation, because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ, you are going to look so radically different from the world around you. I had two uh, conversations this week that really drove this point home. Uh, the first one, I was talking to um, a friend of mine, Pastor Trevor Peacock out in Redemption uh, Church in Calgary, and he was telling me a little bit about just what was going on in their church and some of the things happening there, and he's sharing with me about a man who had been coming with his wife. His, his wife's saved, but he's not. He's guy's kind of in his late 50s. He doesn't have a lot of exposure to the church, but he's been coming with his wife, and he's intrigued by the church. And, and so he'd been coming for a number of weeks now. It's been like a couple of months. And so Trevor pulls him aside after one of the services and he, and he says to this man, he's like, hey, you know, I just want to, I know we've been talking a little bit. You've been here a little while. Like, tell me, like, what are your thoughts? What are you thinking? And he said, well, he said, you know, it's, I find it very interesting. He said, you know what? Um, you know, on Sunday mornings, I, I really enjoy your teaching and it's clear and it's helpful. I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but, you know, I, I can understand what you're saying and I see kind of why you're teaching the Bible and what you're teaching from the Bible. But he says, but I got to be honest with you, the first part of your service is, is really uncomfortable. It's like, it, it's super weird. Like, what do you, it's so, you guys are coming in here, a group of people, and you're singing these weird songs about Jesus. <laughs> So he says to him, he says, like, is Jesus this, Jesus that, the blood of Jesus? He's like, I'm just telling you right now, it's really weird and it makes me very uncomfortable. And Trevor goes, oh, okay, well, I'd expect that. Like, you ever think about that? Like, in whatever context are people doing what we're doing? But then he says this to him. He says, he said, okay. He says, let me be really honest. He's like, you, 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 you know, not you, you're okay, but you got a lot of weird people in this church. So he says to him. I thought, I said, Trevor, that would be a great slogan for the church where a bunch of weird people gather to sing songs of worship on their day off. It's a great church slogan. To some people, what we're doing in here seems very weird, and it is. It's different because we're different. But you know, uh, a second kind of conversation I had this week pointed this out uh, in another way. A friend of mine in the church, he's a leader in this church, he was telling me um, about something he had attend for work, uh, a training seminar about five years ago, five, six years ago, where uh, the public school board was putting on a, a training seminar for suicide prevention. And the presenter in this training seminar 
uh, had a, a bunch of you know, blank sheets of paper up at the front, and he had some questions on there. And, and he asked everybody, all the participants, to come up to the front and answer the question just kind of by way of voting. And one of the questions was this, who believes suicide is wrong? So I went morally wrong. And then the presenter got up and he presented all of the data that they gathered. And what was interesting is when he got to that one question, who believes suicide was wrong, there was only one person in the room of 50 who said that suicide was wrong. Only one. Now, now the people in the room were willing to say, you know, like, I don't think it's good. Um, I don't agree with it. But they weren't willing to say that it was morally wrong, except for the one believer who had a biblical worldview. And the, and the discussion that followed was, was very amicable. It, it was kind and gracious, and they sought kind of some understanding. But it just really jumped out to me how different we are from the rest of the world, Right? But, but you know what's happening? Here's what's happening. We have lived in a culture and a society that has seen Christianity, for the most part, as being acceptable. It may not be agreed with or wholeheartedly embraced by everybody, but it's been somewhat acceptable. Nobody's had a real big problem with Christianity. Now, we're moving to a place where Christianity is, 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 has been kind of tolerated. Right? I really don't agree with it, I don't like it, but I'll tolerate it. We are now moving to a place where toleration of Christianity is not going to be an option for very much longer. We are moving to full-fledged hostility against those who dare to disagree with the, the, the times that we're living in, the, the philosophy of the world, the way of thinking that defines our secular post-Christian society. And to make claims, truth claims, about Jesus, about our faith, about ethics and morality, listen, will inevitably be met with greater and greater hostility. And this is the price we pay for following Jesus Christ. And I just, I just want to reaffirm what Peter is telling us this morning and what we must learn to embrace if we're going to be faithful and anchored in hope. It is our connection to Jesus that is responsible for our rejection from the world. And it's not you they hate most of all, it's the one you follow. You say, well, what do we do? I'll tell you what we don't do. We don't lose hope. We don't lose hope. In fact, we cling to hope. And that's what Peter wants to say. He says, don't you see that the reality that your God is a saving God gives you all the hope you need in this world, regardless of what you're facing. You have a hope to cling to, and it's found in your salvation. And the hope of our salvation is anchored in this theological truth. Listen, do you see what he says there? Your exiles who've been dispersed, but notice what comes before the word exiles. Did you catch that? Look at your Bible. Look at that word. You are elect exiles. That's a contradictory term. Do you realize that? To be an exile means you're an outcast. To be elect means you are chosen and brought in and embraced. So at one time, listen, in one phrase, he reminds us that while we are outcasts in the world, we are embraced by God himself. And it's such a beautifully profound truth. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, God speaks of Israel as his elect. And again, that word can be translated as chosen. You are my chosen people, God says, over and over and over again. See, why does Peter use so much uh, distinctly Jewish language in this book? He's gonna use it over and over and over again. He's telling them, you're my people. You are my chosen people. 
part of the same family as, as chosen Israel. You are the people of God. I have chosen you. Why? Why does he say this? Because in the midst of, of exile and persecution and hostility and suffering, what anchors us the whole time is the reminder that we are God's and he is ours. He has chosen us. We have hope because our God is a saving God. And he always has been. He's always saved his people who are in exile. He's always protected his people in exile. He's always carried his people out of exile and through exile. He's offering to his people a profound message of hope. Now listen, it may not look feel or seem like there is a reason to have hope. It may not even look, feel, or seem like God has chosen. You may look at your life sometimes like, really God, I'm going through all of this and and I'm supposed to believe that you've chosen me and the answer of scripture is yes. And if you believe that, it will get you through whatever you're facing. This hope anchors our soul. And all of this hope is found in the gift of salvation and God's choosing of them. And so what he does here is he goes on to explain and to unpack God's choosing of his people. And here's what he does. He gives three phrases here in verse two that actually describe how God chose, why God chose. It describes the nature of salvation to us, the choosing of God. And I want you to see this too. I love this, it unpacks in one sense the role of the Trinity in our salvation. You see God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son all operative and active in your salvation. God was wholly invested in saving you. And he gives us truths to anchor our soul, to give us hope in the knowledge that he is a saving God. And here's the first one, I am chosen because of the love of the Father. I'm chosen because of the love of the Father. You'll notice he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now foreknowledge doesn't just relate to knowing a fact. It relates to knowing people with a personal, loving, fatherly kind of knowledge. You can look through the Bible and you can see that this term of of knowing is often a term of intimacy and endearment, a term of affection. You see, in other words, God doesn't merely observe the elect. He doesn't just know facts about the elect or chosen. He doesn't know simply, he doesn't look down the corridors of time and simply know that they will choose him. We are foreknown by God. To know is synonymous with to love. This is such a powerful truth to embrace. It is to have a unique or peculiar interest, delight, and affection for someone. You see, God didn't just know about you before he saved you. He didn't choose you because he knew you would choose him. He chose an eternity past to set his divine love upon you. He thought of you before you ever thought of him and he chose to love you in eternity past before the creation of the world. He knew you in the most intimate sort of way. That's why Peter is gonna say things like this in chapter two, verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, listen, chosen and precious. 
or to verse 8, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You say, what does this mean? Well, how is this supposed to give me hope? Here's why it gives you hope, because it tells you that your salvation was not an accident. Your salvation was not a act of God, excuse me, God reacting somehow to circumstances. It wasn't random selection and it wasn't performance-based selection. It wasn't like God did a schoolyard pick and chose the best of the best or he simply gathered up the scraps that nobody else wanted. It's not the way it worked. God thought of you before the creation of the world and he loved you. This was the intentional, eternal plan of God. You say, why me? I don't know. I ask that about you all the time. <laughs> I ask that about myself. Why me? Why, right? Listen, there is so much mystery here. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why you. I don't know why me. I don't think we're ever going to know until we get into the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ, okay? That's as simple as I can possibly. I have no idea, but how about we spend less time asking about why he did it and more time praising God for the fact that he did it? What a joy to know that he has chosen us. And you say, how does this anchor me? How does this give me hope? Here's how, because it doesn't matter if you're hated by the world because you are loved by the Father, that's why. Loved not just in a moment based on what you do, based on your performance, based on how you look, based on anything you use to define yourself. You are loved before all of that by the Father. It doesn't matter if you're rejected by the world. You see how this, this comes in? It doesn't matter if you're an outcast by the world. It doesn't matter if they think you're weird. It doesn't matter if they think you're dumb. It doesn't matter if they think you're ignorant. It doesn't matter if they think your ethics are contrary to the, 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 the pattern of, of truth that everybody should follow, you know, on the right side of history. It doesn't matter if you are an outcast by the world, rejected by the world, because you are accepted by the Father, all because of his divine, eternal love for you. Wow, that's so powerful. And it's not just that I'm chosen because of the love of the Father. You say, well, how did God do this? Here's how, I'm chosen by the power of the Spirit. He says this, second phrase here, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, sanctification can be understood in two ways. Now, sanctification is often understood, rightly so, in context, as progressively becoming more like Jesus. You know, the process by which we become holier, we get rid of sin in our life, we become more like Jesus, we become more righteous um, in our behavior, our attitudes, our thoughts. But that's not what this is talking about here. You see, everything Peter describes here is describing the initial act of God's salvation in your life. Sanctification, in other words, is used as a positional term to describe that the word can be translated as consecrated or set apart or devoted to. In other words, what this is telling us is that the power of God's spirit at the moment of your salvation, what God did, he had this eternal plan in heaven before the creation of the world to save you. And then in real time, his spirit, the power of his spirit reached into the darkness of this world and the muck and sin of your life. And by his power, he gripped your heart. He gave you faith. He set you apart unto God as God's treasured possession. He made it happen. His divine power. You say, why is that so important to understand? Because this reminds us of the power and grip of sin. We had no ability, no power to save ourselves. We could not pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We couldn't do it. But God could. 
We were dead in the trespasses of our sins, right? Christianity is not a crutch, as some people want to assume, right? It's a defibrillator. It is something that brings you to life, not just give you something to lean on because you're injured. And that's exactly what the power of the Spirit did. God, by the power of his Spirit, has saved us because we, in our power, could never save ourselves. And you see how this gives hope? If God could save you in the midst of the most bleak of circumstances, in the most hopeless circumstances, that's what that was, right? In the darkness of your sin, under the judgment of God, you had no hope. But God meets you there. And if God can meet you there, if God can save you there, if God's power can set you apart there unto himself, then it doesn't matter what circumstance you're facing. It doesn't matter how powerful the enemy is. God's power is the greatest power of all. No circumstance too great. No trial too hard. No suffering too severe. No crisis of the soul too potent. The power of God's spirit we can depend upon him, and that is our hope. And lastly, he says, I'm chosen for the honor of the Son. He goes on to give us two phrases that are linked together, and he says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And again, we can't separate these two. This is intended to convey the same truth. This is the purpose for which, or the goal of which, we have been chosen. This is the, the, the way God saved us. He, he takes these two truths for obedience to the Son, and he takes, and the sprinkling of his blood, and he says these are two sides of the same coin, and this here is how you were saved. God's eternal plan in eternity past because of his divine love for you, the power of his spirit working in and around you and upon you, and in a moment in time, what we see here is you chose chose him because he chose you. The obedience to Jesus Christ, again, this is not talking about a life of ongoing obedience. It is talking about that moment in time, that decisive act whereby you heard the voice of God calling you to himself. You heard what Peter heard. Come and follow me and I will make you fishers. Come and I will give you forgiveness and freedom and grace. Come and I will take your sins and cast it as far as the east is from the west. And in that moment in time, you bowed the knee to King Jesus and you said, Jesus, I will obey you. I will follow you. I will live my life for you and your glory. You are my Lord and my master, no one else and nothing else. Only you, Jesus. That's what he's talking about right here. And the backdrop of this is so, so powerful. You see, he pulls out terms um, that bring us back into the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 24, in fact, you can flip there if you want to keep your finger in Peter. But in Exodus chapter 24, here's what he says. Um, the context, by the way, is prior to this in chapter 23, he is preparing his people to enter into the promised land, their homeland for the first time. And God's saying, I'm gonna go with you. There's gonna be trials ahead, but there's gonna be conquest that I bring about through you. You're gonna go into the land, but before you can go into the land, here's what he does in verse 24. He needs to make a covenant with them. 
In verse 3, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, this is the law, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrifices, peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins and half of the blood and he threw it against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, the law, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, listen, you can hear the nation of Israel with one voice, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Catch this. And we will be obedient. We will follow you, God. We submit to your kingship. And Moses took the blood from those sacrifices. Notice what he did. He threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Their obedience and God's mercy, their surrender and God's forgiveness merge at this moment like they do in all of our lives as we come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as they were, listen, sprinkled with the blood of these sacrifices, it was a reminder, listen, that they needed something to die for their sins. They, they couldn't come into a, a relationship with God. They could have no intimacy with God. In fact, they were strangers, exiles, aliens, and so sojourners from God's presence because of their sin. But God in his grace, as he worked in their hearts to call them to submit to him, he says to them, I will spare you and forgive you by the blood of an innocent one in your place. And we know what the gospel does, right? God takes the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all these Old Testament sacrifices, and he sprinkles us with his blood. He says to us, you are cleansed, you are brought near because of the blood of my son. He can die in your place. He can give victory over sin. He can set free all those who bow the knee to King Jesus. God had done this in the past and he does this for us. This is how God saved you. He chooses you in his love by the power of his spirit for the honor of his son and he chose to put your faith in him. He helped you by the power of his spirit. He opened your blind eyes. He gave energy to the spirit within you and he, by his grace, saved you. And you see, we can have hope because our God is a saving God. Nothing too great, nothing too overwhelming, nothing too powerful for our God. If he can save me then, he can save me now. That's the hope that he gives. And that's why he closes with this greeting and this message of hope. He says this, lastly, I can hope because God is sustaining. Very simple. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And this is, listen, this is both a promise and a prayer. He wants for this. He asks for this for the people of God. But he knows this is what God offers and promises to his people. You know what's really interesting is that after the people of God in Exodus chapter 24 said, we will follow you, we will obey you, you are our God, we are your people. Listen to what it says. You just listen to this. It says, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel 
went up and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. You say, what's God doing? What's God doing there? As they enter into a covenant with God, they have access to divine fellowship with God. They eat and drink. They behold his glory and they sit down at a table and they have a meal with God. The most intimate act among friends, the inviting into their home, the hospitality and grace of God on full display. And what God is saying is, don't you understand, because you are now in a covenant with me, you have full and complete access to me. My presence and my power will be available to you. You can draw near to me and you can be assured that I will draw near to you. Now listen, listen, listen. Grace and peace be multiplied to you is a powerful statement. But it does not overflow to you unless you are willing to draw near to God. His promise is that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. It's there, it's waiting, it's available. Will you grab hold of it? The heart of Peter is that God's grace His undeserved favor will be ongoing more and more. He's not talking about the objective reality of God's grace. He's talking about the subjective experience of God's grace that meets you in every circumstance. God's like, I want you to know my grace. I want you to know my presence is with you. You're not alone in this. I am here. I have not left you or forsaken you. And because you know that my presence and power is here, my peace can sustain you. In the chaos and hostility of the world, my peace can be with you right now in this moment. Yes, we are exiles and strangers in a foreign land, but we are elect exiles. We are a chosen people. We may be scattered in a land of darkness and hostility, awaiting our future home, but we are not a people without hope. Our God is speaking, our God is saving, and our God is sustaining no matter what we face. We have hope, listen, because we have God. 